So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's uh, bow together in a word of prayer before we hear the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you mercifully condescend to us, that you have come to us in the person of your son, that he has saved us by his life, death, and resurrection, that he has poured out your Holy Spirit upon us. Moreover, that you continue to speak through us through the reading and the preaching of your word. You have not left us as orphans in this world, and neither, O Lord, uh, do you cease to feed us and care for us, but rather you give unto us Christ, the manna from heaven, and you have poured out your spirit upon us uh, to assuage our thirst. We pray, O Lord, that by Christ and your spirit, you would conform us to your image, that you would sanctify us, that you would comfort us, that you would cause us to bring glory to your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In weeks past, we've been looking at uh, the book of Hebrews, and in particular, how the author to the book of Hebrews has exhorted and encouraged the recipients of his letter uh, to persevere in their faith in Christ, even in the face of severe persecution. They were subjected to persecution for the sake of Christ. In verses 32 and 33 of chapter 10, He says, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to uh, reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Yet in the face of this suffering, what the author pointed them to, and we saw this uh, last week, is he pointed them to their continued persevering faith in Christ and in his gospel. Chapter 10, verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Now, I think a natural reaction... Uh, to the author's call to faith in Christ, we could say is the physical challenge, or perhaps we might say the physical or visual challenge. He was calling them to trust in one whom they could not see. They could not see Jesus. You know, it's a lot easier, I think we might see, it's like we could say, okay, here is somebody that I can see, I can behold him, and so therefore I have a greater foundation for trusting in that person. How can I trust in somebody I have never seen? He was calling them to trust in Christ to deliver them 
when the only thing that they could see was their suffering, was the persecution, was the seeming conquest and victory by unbelievers. So what they could see was completely contrary to what the author was calling them to do, which is believe in the gospel of Christ, to trust in one that they could not see. And so I think what the author does naturally here is he transitions in the 11th chapter to talk about the nature of faith so that they understand what it is. And that brings us really to the threshold of perhaps what is uh, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, uh, which some people have called the Great Hall of Faith, where we see Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint uh, identified as those who had faith. Now, certainly that is the main thrust of what the author uh, wants them to see. The big picture here is, is that as I am calling you to faith, don't go back because the Old Testament saints, they had faith, but they were looking forward to the very time and day and moment and redemptive history in which you now live. Don't go back because they, they wanted to be where you are. Moreover, they had faith in the promise of the gospel, the very same faith to which I am calling you to persevere. That's the big picture. But in the finer details, as we begin to make our way through the 11th chapter, we want to take note of a number of the specific, subtle references that the author makes. He's making some powerful connections to the Old Testament and By these powerful connections, he was trying to fuel their faith in the present, in the face of this suffering. And my prayer and hope is that we will see those subtle connections and that it would do the same for us. And so what we want to do, first of all, is we want to understand what is faith and, and how does the author describe it? How does it work? And then secondly, we want to see how does this faith function in the midst of the Christian life? So first, let's, let's give thought to what is faith. Notice how the author describes it. It's not quite a definition, but it's more of a description. He says in chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. So I think there's a sense in which the author grants the point of the implicit question. Namely, yes, you can neither see Jesus nor his salvation at this particular moment. It seems as if Jesus is absent, he's unseen. Moreover, the promised redemption that is supposed to come through him is also unseen. The only thing you see is the persecution and the suffering. But he says, but this is the very nature of faith. Faith is believing in and entrusting in things that you cannot see. And this is why he says there in verse 2, for by it, that is faith, the people of old received their commendation. They couldn't see the things that were promised. You know, think back to Abraham. We looked at Abraham last week, the faith of Abraham. When God told Abraham, as Abraham, in a sense, questioned, how is it that you will provide me with heirs as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, when yet Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. Abraham could not see what God had promised. He could not see. 
And yet, what does God say when he promises him in Genesis 15? For this man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So he makes him a promise, but yet Abraham can't see it. It's unseen. And yet, what happens? Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham could not see, and yet he believed. He could not physically see the fulfillment of God's gospel promise, uh, but by God's grace and the gift of faith, he nevertheless believed. He had an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Now, going on from that, which the author had visited back at the end towards chapter 10, he now points in chapter 11, verse 3, to the very creation itself. He says, by faith, remember, having hope in things unseen, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of the things that are visible. You see, no one... No one by the, but the triune God was present for the opening moments of the creation. One of the things I point out to my students is we say, okay, yes, Genesis 1 through 3 is undoubtedly historical narrative. It is reporting and recounting to us historical, physical events that transpired in the opening moments of the creation. But I say, at the same time, it's a unique form of historical narrative because one of the requisites that you need for historical narrative is a human eyewitness. But yet there was no human eyewitness to the very opening moments of the creation. God created and human beings weren't, weren't in existence until the sixth day. Uh, my children then ask, well, then, Dad, how does anybody know what happened? <laughs> So, well, because God reveals it to us. He tells it about what happened in his word. But when God said, uh, you know, in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, and there was light, there was no human witness there to observe it. No one but the triune God heard these words. There were no human witnesses. And when the word of God tells us that everything that we see Uh, was not made out of visible things, but was made out of nothing, we have to understand what the author means here. By saying nothing, I don't want you to think that he means something. Follow me with this. We might get a little bit twisted here, like a pretzel in the mind, but it's important that we recognize this. You know, when I say, if I were to ask you, what is it that's in my hand? You would say, well, nothing is in your hand. Technically speaking, that's not true. I mean, I'm no scientist. I get all of my science from Star Wars, right? But when we say that there's nothing in my hand, technically speaking, there's oxygen here. There are molecules and atoms. So when I say that God made the world, and when the scriptures say that God made the world out of nothing, it's not the kind of nothing that's in my hand, which is technically something. It was a nothing where there is absolutely nothing in in existence when God says, let there be light. He speaks, and out of no previous existing matter, a complete and total absence and void of molecules and atoms, he brings forth the world. He brings forth the creation He powerfully brought it forth by the spoken word. He brought forth the creation and everything that we see. This is something that we did not see. We did not observe it. 
There is no human witness to it. We can't rewind the creation to watch it unfold. We can't create these conditions in a laboratory. It is simply a revealed truth that we have to accept by faith. Accepting things unseen, things hoped for. That's the nature of the creation. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. And he says, okay, see, right here in the creation. Right here in the creation. So he starts off at the creation, which is something that they know. And he begins to press this point more specifically. In other words, he makes a general doctrinal observation. And now he's going to bring it home to the very immediate circumstances of their life, the Christian life in the midst of their struggling, in the midst of their faith. You know, to put it in the simplest of terms, he's taking doctrine and he's applying it. He's showing it how this doctrine is relevant to their immediate circumstances, which brings us to our second and ultimately final point. He moves first in these seven verses to discussing Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And by so doing, he's stressing the chief point that namely, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And so he starts off with Abel, and he points out the contrasting conduct between Cain and Abel. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by, the accepting, by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now here the author it gives us some insights that the original text in Genesis doesn't reveal, and he explains why it is that Abel was righteous in God's sight, and thus God accepted his sacrifice, whereas God rejected Cain's sacrifice. I can remember when I was a child, uh, somebody in Sunday school saying, well, it's the reason that God accepted Abel's sacrifice is that it was a better sacrifice. It was, it was uh, better material. It was the firstborn of his flock, whereas, uh, you know, Cain just brought, you know, some, some crops, and that was less acceptable. But that's not what the author says. You know, Genesis 4, verses 3 and following, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why? Why does he accept Abel's offering and he rejects Cain's? Because Abel, unlike Cain, had faith in the promise of the gospel. The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Cain did not have faith. So it's not the difference in the sacrifices, but rather it was in the presence and absence of faith. Cain did not believe Abel did. Abel was not righteous, however, because he brought the sacrifice. It's not that God looked upon Abel and he said, oh, look at this righteous thing that you have done. You've brought a terrific sacrifice. Therefore, I will receive it. But rather, it's because Abel had the gift of faith that he was righteous by the grace of God. That's because he brought this sacrifice. The sacrifice was the evidence of the faith that he had. But I want you to note that there's a subtler message here. I think one of encouragement to the author or to the, to the recipients of Hebrews 
Think about this, because I, 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 don't, I don't believe that the author is just citing examples at random. Think of how vast and how large the Old Testament is, and then ask the question, why does he specifically cite these examples? It would be kind of pointless just randomly to select kind of whatever examples he, you know, he might think would be of encouragement, but I think he's citing some very specific examples for important reasons. And in this case, remember, Cain and Abel were brothers, and both were worshiping God, one truly and one only nominally. But God looked past appearances and saw the truth of who truly believed. He could see the intentions of their hearts despite their outward appearances. Now think of that scenario, how it also applies to the scenario of the suffering of the recipients of this letter. The Jews, those who didn't believe, and the Jewish Christians were both Israelites. They were, in a sense, brothers. And both claimed to worship God. The Jews claimed we worship the God of the Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish Christians claim we worship the God of the Old Testament scriptures as he's been revealed in Christ. Both claim to worship God, yet what he is implicitly saying here is that God sees past the appearances. He knows who truly believes. God accepted Abel. He rejected Cain. The message here is that God is accepting you because you believe in Christ. But he is rejecting their Jewish persecutors. Even though Cain struck down Abel and persecuted him for his faith, God accepted Abel and his faith still speaks. Likewise, the author is saying... God has not forgotten you in your suffering. He is receiving you into his care. He is rejecting, if you will, the descendants of Cain. You are the descendants of Abel. Therefore, continue to persevere in the faith. For God is looking past appearances and he knows those who are truly his. So there's an implicit message of hope buried in this example. I think we can say the same thing about Enoch who is perhaps one of those mysterious Old Testament figures because of what happened to him. By faith, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now Enoch is one of those figures that we might have to go back and do a little refresher course. He was 65 years old when his son Methuselah was born, according to Genesis 5.20. I told my children just this week, Methuselah was the oldest person in the Bible. Right? But his father was Enoch, and we read in Genesis 5.22, he walked with God for some 300 years after that. And then mysteriously, it says in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. There's only two people in all of the Bible that, to, to whom this happened to. Enoch is one of them and Elijah is the other one, that God swept in on the chariot and, and picked up Elijah. That's that event that, uh, that inspired the, the old spiritual swing low, sweet chariot. 
Well, we can assume that it's something very similar happened to Enoch. He was walking with God. He was living faithfully, and all of a sudden, he was not. God just took him. He did not experience death. He transitioned straight from life into eternal life. And I always think, that's how I want to go. That's how I want to go. Because when it comes to the whole prospects of death, I think, you know, that, that great maxim of my brother that I shared with you a couple of weeks, no pain, no pain. It's like the first time I had surgery, uh, I told my wife, I now know how I want to die under general anesthesia, you know, <laughs> count backwards, 10, 9, next thing you wake up, what happened? <laughs> yeah, it's over. Well, how long has it been? It's been about two hours. Okay, this is great. I like this. That's how I want to go. And if not that way, well, then I'll take Enoch's way. And this is, this is an important point here. The author really wants to make sure that the, that the readers of Hebrews understand how miraculous this is. He says it five times so that they don't think that he just died. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him before he was taken. Five times. He's basically saying he was taken, he was taken, he was taken, he was taken, he was taken. Okay? Why? Because he had faith. Because of his faith in the gospel promise of God, he didn't die, which again, the author reiterates five times. And in fact, because of his God-given faith, he says that Enoch pleased God, which is why God gave him the reward of eternal life. Once again, there's a subtle point here that the author's making. You know, it's not, he's not just taking us on, a, on, an, on an ambulating, rambling tour of, of Old Testament history. He's citing these examples for specific reasons. And this is the particular point that he's trying to make. God gave Enoch the reward of eternal life because he had faith in the promise. So you too will receive the promised reward because you have faith in the gospel promise. And this is why he says there uh, in in chapter uh, 10, verse 46, uh, 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, the author's not saying you're not going to die. He's not saying that. But rather, like Enoch, who received the gift of eternal life by faith, they too will receive the gift of eternal life. In other words, even though the promise of eternal life is unseen, especially in the face of persecution, a hearty faith in Christ looks past appearances to that which is unseen and looks to the promised future blessings of heaven. Third and finally here, you have Noah which we read about in verse 7, where the author says this. He says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now here, once again, there's, there's, there's another unseen element here, the coming judgment of the world. You know, what is it that God commanded Noah to do in Genesis 6, 13 and following? I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through him. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. It's an unseen coming judgment of the world. 
Think about that from on a number of different levels. There are a number of different observations that we can make here. I don't know if you've ever been in the big city, a big city, uh, and seen somebody may, maybe not necessarily wearing a sandwich board, uh, but you know at least it's popularly portrayed in cartoons and in comics and in sometimes in movies, a sandwich board where the person has a sandwich board on, you know, the end of the world is near. And you always kind of walk by them and you just kind of think, okay, this guy's maybe not playing with a full deck. I'm just going to steer a wide path around it and keep on going. I can remember to this day, I don't know why, but uh, there, was, there, was a, there was a Navy chaplain standing on a street corner uh, in downtown San Francisco. And as I was a kid, I ended up walking past him. He was street preaching. And I can remember because he was in his dress uniform. He had his hat, uh, you know, his cover tucked in his side here. But I can remember he just seemed a little off because as he was preaching, there was, you know, spittle running down his cheek uh, and, and he was yelling. And I thought, this seems like one of these sandwich board guys. I suspect Noah faced that kind of uh, strange looks for a long time. What you doing, Noah? Uh, you know, uh, nothing, none of your business. <laughs> no, no, come on, what you doing? I'm building a boat. A boat? <laughs> what for? Because the Lord is going to destroy the earth. Oh, really now, is he? I mean, this wasn't a sandwich board. <laughs> this is, you know, a massive boat out in the middle of dry land. I, I, I'm sure that they thought he was nuts. Well, maybe if you can't float in it, maybe you can use it as a house. I mean, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if on a daily basis he had people just standing by, just kind of like, I think he's nuts. I wonder what he's doing this for. It's unseen, and yet he had faith in the unseen coming judgment. But from a flip side... Think of the persecution and the ridicule that Noah faced, you know, that he personally experienced. It must have been very difficult because here he sees the unseen presence of God by faith. But on the other hand, it's like the earth is full of violence. And I suspect Noah could see this. Where are you, God? Why aren't you removing these wicked people? Why aren't you coming sooner? God's promise is unseen. Why, O oh Lord, are you allowing these people on a daily basis to ridicule me for my faith in your unseen promises? But once again... There's a subtle point that the author's making that we might not immediately see. You know, the impression that many have when either they see or experience persecution for their faith is that they simply suffer. They're, they're weak. They're, they're at the whims and mercies of their persecutors. But notice the twofold goal of what Noah's God-given faith accomplished, which I think was supposed to strengthen the recipients of, of this letter. First, Noah's faith in the promise of God was a key factor in the salvation of his household. It's the means by which he saved his family. The implicit message here is continue to trust in the promised gospel of Christ and God will watch over you and those whom you love. But secondly, notice that the expression of Noah's faith 
the obedience that he exercised towards the command of God, what this accomplished. And again, the latter half of verse 7, by this, by his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Many of us don't think of obedience, obedience unto the commandments of God as condemnation against unbelievers. But this is exactly the way that the author characterizes Noah's ark building. You know, we've perhaps experienced this on a much smaller level, where say you, you invite friends or, or family uh, that are unbelievers over to stay at your house, and then, you know, you get up to get ready to go to church on Sunday morning and, and they're wandering around in their pajamas or whatever. Uh, and maybe there's even a little bit of tension there. And they're like, what, what, what? Do you think that you're better than me because you're going to church? You know, you want to say, well, if yes, I am better than you. <laughs> it's an objective fact. No, uh, you want to say no. But notice what happens is that they take offense simply because you seek to be obedient to the command of God. Just by being obedient, it's an act of condemnation against unbelief, against disobedience. You know, how many times, whether as children, whether as adults, when somebody is engaged in sinful activity and you refuse to participate, do people get upset? What are you, a Boy Scout? What are you, a goody two-shoes? What are you going to tell on us? No, I'm just trying to be faithful to what Christ has called me to do. Your obedience in the face of disobedience is condemnation against that sinful conduct. And this is the way that the author characterizes Noah's obedience in building the ark. He was condemning unbelief by being obedient. The implicit message here is this. You suffering recipients of this letter are condemning the sinful persecution of those who make you suffer simply by being faithful, simply by believing in the promise of God. Your faith is not in vain. Not only will it save you, but it is the very instrument by which God brings condemnation against these unbelievers. And notice here, too, what's inherently built into this is the foolishness of the gospel. How many of us would think, I know, here's how we should condemn unbelief. We should round them up and sentence them in some sort of court. That seems like it would be reasonable. But yet, think of the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. How many of us would think that, yes, the proper way to condemn somebody for their unbelief in the gospel is to build a boat? I don't think... Hardly any of us, if, if any of us at all, would, would, would say that that's the best way to do it. How many of us would say, what is the most effective means for propagating the gospel? How many different ideas might come to mind, especially nowadays? Well, what about social media? What about YouTube videos? What about uh, movies? Uh, what about, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of kind of slick campaign ads? And God says, how about the foolishness of preaching? 1 Corinthians one twenty five for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What the author of Hebrews is inherently saying is he says, I know you may think this is foolish, 
when that you're condemning people simply by believing in the promised gospel and by staying faithful, but this is the very means by which God will bring about your salvation and the condemnation of the wicked through the foolishness of the gospel, because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wise ideas of men. In other words, he's telling them, your faith is not in vain. You are bringing an as-of-yet-unseen judgment against the unbelieving world through your faith and obedience. So the implicit message here is, stay faithful. Stay the course. Don't fall back. Persevere. The author pleads with his recipients with faith as the sine qua non or the absolute prerequisite for both salvation and the Christian life. Again, Hebrews 10.38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Or Hebrews 11.6, without faith, or sorry, uh, not Hebrews 10.6, but it is without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to recognize that faith would not be faith if we could see the things that have been promised. If we could physically see Christ. If we could physically see the new heavens and earth. If we could physically see the judgment of the wicked. And so in this sense, we're no different than the saints that have gone before. Cain persecuted Abel and made him the first martyr. People could not see that God received Abel into his arms. But Abel knew that God would receive him because of his faith in the promised gospel. Enoch was simply no more. People could not see that God gave him eternal life, but Enoch, by faith, received the gift of eternal life. People thought that Noah was a fool for building a boat. They could not see the coming judgment, but Noah could see it by faith. And so our prayer and hope should be that God would grant unto us greater faith, a faith that would behold the unseen blessings of salvation in Christ, which would give us hope, for the present, sorry, hope for the future and courage for the present. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, right now we walk by faith and not by sight, but blessedly there will come a day when faith will give way to sight. Faith will give way to sight when we behold the face of God and the face of Christ with our eyes. But until that day, beloved in Christ, pray for greater faith. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for you are merciful and kind to us beyond what we could ever ask, imagine, or think. So often, our Lord, our faith wavers. We think that if only we could see the things that have been promised, that this would be better. And yet you have not given us the privilege of seeing those promised blessings at the present moment but rather you call us to faith. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would give us greater faith to hope in things unseen, to have assurance of promises that we cannot behold with our physical eyes, whether it be the blessings and promises of eternal life, whether it be the the blessings of vindication for your people, or whether it be, O Lord, your approval for our obedience in the midst of, of a lost and dying world. We pray, O Lord, that you would give unto us greater faith so that it would be said of us that we are your beloved children, that we are obedient, that we love you, even in the face of challenges and difficulties. 
Oh, Father, use us to glorify yourself as you used Abel, as you used Enoch, as you used Noah. So use us, O Lord, we pray. We ask and pray all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.